gospel. Um, so how's everybody's week going? Good. Stuff going all right? I man, I had a I had a weird weekend. Like Sunday felt like Friday, so now I don't know what day it is. But it's Tuesday. Glad to be here. Uh, hope you guys are too. Turn with me to Colossians two. We're going to start the second chapter this week. Um, and tonight's study is actually really simple. Um, I, I have Trisha read through everything that I write, and she read through it, and she's like, yeah. And normally, sometimes she'll have like really helpful, insightful things to say, like, oh, well, have you thought about this, or did you look at this, or I liked how you said this, and she's like, she read it this week, and she's like, oh, that is simple. I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> so um, it's just a really simple passage, um, and so hopefully you guys enjoy it as much as I have. But uh, we're starting Colossians chapter 2, and something that's important to remember up front, last week, Bruno finished taking us through chapter 1, where Paul talked about the mystery of Christ living inside of you as a Christian. And remember last week he pointed out that when, when the Bible calls something a mystery, it's not referring to some big unknown thing that we don't have an answer for. Um, it's not like the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, no, when Scripture calls something a mystery, it's because it's something that was at one point unknown to the prophets of the Old Testament. But since we have access to the New Testament, we can read it and, and get an understanding. Uh, and, and a biblical mystery is now revealed to us uh, through the New Testament so we can properly understand it. And that's important for us to keep in mind tonight because we've got a few more mysteries to talk about here in these first three verses. Because uh, Paul is about to talk later in chapter 2 about some places uh, where we shouldn't go to get our knowledge and understanding. And we'll hear more about that in a couple weeks. But tonight in verses 1 through 3, Paul makes sure that he settles the answer to, to the question of where we as believers should be getting our knowledge and understanding of the truth from. Uh, so read along with me in Colossians 2, uh, verses 1 through 3. It says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, like I said, Paul, uh, if we're looking for wisdom and knowledge, Paul is telling us where to get it uh, right here. And in the coming weeks, he'll tell us where to not get it, and that's a fun uh, fun thing to look at too. But let's pray tonight and ask that God shows us his knowledge and wisdom um, because that's really the knowledge and wisdom that we want. Uh, so I'll pray and we can get started. God, I just thank you so much for uh, once again the opportunity to come here and just spend time with with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the middle of the week. You know, we're grateful to be able to to meet like this, um, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but this has been a weird year and we're, we know what it's like to not get to do this. And uh, we're thankful for the opportunity to do that. And we pray that tonight we just uh, look at your word and see uh, where our knowledge and wisdom should come from and that you just make it clear to us uh, what we need to do. In your name we pray, amen. amen. All right, so the first thing we can't miss is the audience that Paul is talking to in Colossians 2. Um, and in verse 1 specifically, it says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So his audience is the same as it was for chapter 1. He's primarily writing to the church in Colossae. That's why the book is called Colossians. See, I told you this was really uh, deep and intricate tonight. But he also brings up the people in Laodicea as well. How many times are we going to drop that? 
Oh, man. <clears throat> Anyways, we can reasonably consider that when he brings up the people in Laodicea, he's talking about the church in Laodicea. Because in Colossians 4.16, uh, near the end of the letter, he says, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So even though the book was written to the church in Colossae, we know that Paul wanted the church in Laodicea to read it as well, since they were close to each other. Um, I looked it up. They're actually like 10 miles apart, which isn't far if you have a car, but I guess they probably didn't back then, so it was probably a little farther than we think. But it was only 10 miles. But don't miss the direct application to us, because as a local church, we always apply Paul's church epistles directly to us, but we don't only apply this to ourselves as a church in general, and we don't only apply this to ourselves because we haven't seen Paul's face in the flesh, which we haven't, but we also need to pay special attention anytime Laodicea or the Laodiceans are mentioned in Scripture. We don't have that much time to actually dig into why that is tonight, but in case you want to dig into it on your own, uh, Revelation 2 and 3 contains seven short letters from Jesus to seven separate churches, and the last one was written to the church at Laodicea at the end of Revelation chapter 3. And while these for sure were seven literal churches that existed in that area um, at the time, back in the first century, we also understand that Revelation 2 or 3 are written as a prophecy that takes us all the way from the start of the church shortly after Jesus' ascension to the rapture of the church, which happens in Revelation 4. So while these seven letters were written to seven different local churches, they were also written as a prophecy of seven different periods in church history. And if you read the final letter, which if you want to look it up is in Revelation 3, 14 through 22, you'll find that it describes perfectly the general state of Christians in our world today. And that's unfortunate because it doesn't actually have very nice things to say about the church in Laodicea. Um, but that tells us God doesn't have very nice things to say about the church in general uh, today. We're lazy. We think we're rich, but we're not. Um, there's all kinds of things that you can get into there. But the idea is that the church of the, at Laodicea is going to be a picture of us, Christians living in our world today. Um, so not only are we taking Paul's epistle to a church uh, as a church written to us, but man, there's something specific about what Paul's about to say uh, because he points at Laodicea. And so the things that Paul had to specifically say to the Laodiceans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are going to be particularly applicable to us. So as Paul gets into his discussion of God's wisdom and knowledge versus the world's wisdom and knowledge, which is what he's going to get to, we better pay special attention because that's something that, because if the Laodiceans struggled to understand the difference between the two, Christians today are going to make the same mistake if they're not careful. And if you look around at how the world gets its knowledge and wisdom, um, that's, that's the case. Um, and that can directly affect the life of a church. And that's what Paul says in verse 2. Uh, he says that he wants uh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of, the under, of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. So we can see that our hearts comfort our relationship with one another and our confidence in what we believe are all tied to our acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And like I said at the beginning, and like Bruno mentioned last week, a mystery is something that was once hidden and unknown, but's now revealed for us to know if we just study the Bible. And this passage contains three mysteries, the mystery of God, the mystery of the Father, and the mystery of Jesus Christ. The way that, that sentence is written, it's the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. So it's not just one mystery about all three. So what are those? 
Well, the mystery of God is mentioned in Revelation 10:7. It says, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. And as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. So near the end of the tribulation period, before Jesus is returned to establish his kingdom, this angel declares the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. So the mystery of God, that's just the prophecies that we have in the Bible. And one day, every single one of them will be coming true. They will all come to pass. And the book of Revelation actually describes how a lot of them will play out. It's like Isaiah 46.10 says, uh, throughout the Bible, God's prophecy is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that were done the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So do you acknowledge that everything in this book is going to play out exactly the way that God says it will? Because if you don't actually think that God is going to return someday to finish the work he started in you and give you a glorified body that will live forever, then it's going to be awfully difficult uh, for your heart to be comforted when it looks like our world has gone to hell in a handbasket, which this is this is the year that the world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, there have been other years that have been difficult, but man, I, I struggle to think of one that was nearly as bad as this one. And if you don't believe that the ultimate goal of our Christian life is to win others to Christ in preparation for his coming kingdom, then it's going to be hard for our hearts to be knit together in love. Amos 3.3 says, can, can two walk together except they be agreed? So if we can't even agree on what our job is as Christians, how can we work together to accomplish anything? And the problem with Christianity in our world is people don't agree on what their job is as Christians. Are we supposed to evangelize and give the gospel? Are we supposed to promote social change? Are we supposed to promote political parties? Um, God's book is clear, but, but Christianity gets it muddled. And if you don't think that God is one day going to give you a new body that's free from the influence of sin, how can you feel the assurance or the confidence that what he did inside of you to change your heart would have an eternal effect? Understanding and acknowledging the mystery of God is important to all of that. So what's the mystery of the Father? Well, that one's actually a little harder to nail down completely because the mystery of the Father isn't uh, mentioned by name like that anywhere else in Scripture. Um, so I'll give you my opinion on what I think it is. Um, I think it's pointing at, at what 1 Timothy calls the mystery of godliness. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And God being manifest in the flesh is obviously a reference to Jesus Christ, who is God in a human body. The fact is that Jesus is 100% man, and he's 100% God. The Gospel of John starts out in John 1.1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, with a capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what's this Word with a capital W? Well, John 1.14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this Word, with a capital W, is God according to verse 1, and he was made flesh and dwelt among us in verse 14. So who could this be if not for Jesus? And don't forget John 3.16 makes sure that we know that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus is God, and Jesus is man. And even though we typically refer to him as the Son of God, or God the Son, Isaiah 9.6 
uh, prophesies Jesus is coming, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus the Son is the Everlasting Father. So Jesus is the Father, the Father is the Son. So even though God the Father and God the Son exist in two different places as two separate entities, they're really the same thing. God is three parts, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and at the same time, he's one God. He's a trinity. And while that's weird, that's like a weird concept for us to try to wrap our minds around, we have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God because that's the only reason why his sacrifice to pay for our sins was able to accomplish anything. If Jesus was just some dude, then him dying on the cross does absolutely nothing for any of us. So we need to take comfort in the fact that God, the God of the universe, became a human being and died on the cross for us. That should unite us together. That should knit our hearts in love. That should comfort us when, when, we, <clears throat> when, we, when we blow it and feel guilty because of our sin. Because your salvation wasn't your doing, so nothing you do can ever ruin it. Because it all rests on what the God of the universe did for you. So as long as you've accepted that fact, man, your eternal destination is completely secure. And the mystery of Christ, uh, the third one, is defined in in Ephesians chapter 3. I'll just read the first six verses. Uh, Ephesians 3, 1 says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given, to me, given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And that's a big deal because at one time in history, in the Old Testament, you had to be Jewish if you wanted to follow God. So God was primarily focused on the nation of Israel. And if you were a Gentile, someone who wasn't a Jew, uh, who wanted to follow the Lord, you had to become a Jewish proselyte and convert to Judaism. But Jesus changed all that. So now Gentiles, non-Jews, are now fellow heirs and of the same body as the Jews who've accepted Jesus Christ. So it no longer matters what race or nationality you are. It doesn't matter what your religious background is. If you want to have a relationship with the God of the universe, you get to do it the same way everybody else does, by accepting Jesus's gift of salvation and becoming a part of the body of Christ. And if that doesn't knit us together in love, I don't know what will. Because everybody is equal in God's eyes. Everybody has the same chance Uh, It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. But it's important for us to think about what we allow to comfort our hearts and what we allow to unite us and what we put our assurance or confidence in. Because Colossians 2, 3, the third verse says, "In in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you want all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? You know where to find them. They're in Christ. And sure, they're, they're hidden in him, but they're not hidden from us. They might be hidden from lost people, but once you've given your life to him, that wisdom and knowledge is available to you anytime you pick up that book and let him speak to you. The world offers its own system of information and wisdom, and we'll learn the dangers of that in the coming weeks. But if you want to learn real knowledge that will affect your life and the wisdom to know what to do with that information, you can pick up your Bible anytime you want. So my hope is that you're taking your time with God and his word seriously. 
I know that's a thing we've been talking about in our, in our small groups. Um, and hopefully you've got stuff to talk about. Hopefully you sit down and spend time with God every day and you allow him to speak to your heart. Because that book has the answers for all of life's problems. And one of the biggest problems with Christianity today is that they just don't believe that anymore. They just don't get that the Bible is sufficient for us. Sure, they think the Bible is cool and all, but they're always trying to fill in whatever gaps they think it has. So sure, you know, the Bible can help you, but, but psychology, that'll really solve all your problems. Or, you know, yeah, the Bible talks about marriage, but if you really want to have a successful marriage, man, you've got to listen to Dr. Phil and all his advice. The Bible just never seems to be enough for most people. Um, and your memory verse this week is Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Do you, do you really believe that? It says the Bible is a discerner of the thoughts of your heart. Do you really believe that the Bible knows what you think? And not only does it claim to know what you think, it also claims to discern the intents of your heart. So do you really believe that it knows why you think those things you think? Man, sometimes I don't even know why I think the things I do. Ask my wife. But man, the Bible, the Bible knows why I think the things I think and what I think. Uh, the Word of God does. And do you really believe that? Because that should affect your approach to every problem you have in your life. Because the answer to every problem you have in your life is in that book. And it should affect the advice or, or counsel you give to others in your life when they have problems. Because you know where to find the answers. Even if they don't, you can help them find it. So what's your source of knowledge and wisdom? And another way to ask it is, where do you place your authority that determines what you think and what you do? Because if it's not in God and his word, you're going to miss out on the life he wants you to live. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then we can break up into small groups. God, I thank you so much for just the clarity and simplicity that, that we find in your word sometimes. And uh, Lord, I think too often we take for granted the fact that we hold your words uh, inspired and preserved for us in our hands and that we can open, open up that book anytime we want and just find whatever answers uh, you have for us. And God, I pray that we take our time with you more seriously, myself included. I pray that we would uh, treat your word and prayer as our first response and not our last resort when it seems like nothing else works. Because, man, the quicker we give our problems over to you and, and, and get your knowledge and wisdom about whatever situation we're in, man, the easier time we're going to have and the less time we're going to be spending stumbling over ourselves and the more effective we can be at, at doing what we're supposed to do, winning others to Christ and making disciples. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.